If you want to turn to Romans 8, I was kind of wanting to preach today on verses 14 to 17 on adoption, and I didn't quite get there. I didn't get past the first four verses, so we're going to look at the first four verses of, of Romans 8 today. All right, let's go before the Lord with the word of prayer. Father, once again, uh, we just ask that through the Holy Spirit, you'll teach and open our hearts to the truth. And uh, as we sang earlier, uh, just the blessed assurance that we have in you. I just ask that you'll give us all more assurance of the salvation that you provided for us today. And uh, just be encouraged today in your word. And we thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. So we'll look at Romans 8 and start reading beginning in verse 1. And Paul writes there, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Amen. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then... They that are in the flesh, they cannot please God. It's probably one of the most preached on chapters, I guess, in, in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8. And the great theme of Romans chapter 8 is the security of the believer. That is what Paul is after there. We'll look at this first verse, but he begins with, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the way it begins. And the way the chapter ends is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he says nothing. So it begins and ends. The whole thing is to give us an assurance of our salvation and our walk with the Lord because this is the truth. So once we have been brought into a vital relationship with the living God, once that takes place, and once we've been brought into union, once we're united to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are eternally secure. Now we know enough here do I have to say that doesn't mean you live in sin and everything's good? We know that, don't we? So the word today is not to people that have that intention in their life, but to those of us that are intent on living in repentance, walking with the Lord, walking in holiness. And for that, you have eternal security. You can be secure. And so you understand that, that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. It is a great blessing and gives you hope to walk this life. And so this whole chapter deals with different aspects of how that security takes place. And much of it talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in providing the security. So it talks about that the Spirit gives life. He crucifies our flesh. His presence in us, we'll get to this, is proof of our adoption. He witnesses with our spirit that we are the sons of God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He helps us in prayer, makes intercession for us. We don't know how to pray. But the Holy Spirit, through us, speaking in tongues, as we know, makes intercession perfectly, perfectly according to the will of God. No mistakes. So there's things we may think we need to pray about, things we may think we need to pray about for somebody else, and He knows better than we do. And He prays through us for those needs and our own needs, right? According to the perfect will of God. And He is the one 
we learned this. He's the one that applies the salvation that Christ, Jesus Christ, purchased for us on the cross. So chapter 8 here, it tells us what it means to be a Christian, not how to become one. That's what Romans chapter 8 here is all about. So let's begin. We look in verse 1, and it begins with, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And so what that therefore refers to, we know it always refers to something that was previously said. And I think it includes all of what Paul has said in the book of Romans up until this point. Because he's talking about chapters 1, 2, and 3. We are all Jews and Gentile, all alike guilty sinners condemned before God. Right? He begins with that. And then he tells us that Jesus was delivered up for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. He tells us that God has justified us freely, nothing we had to earn, freely by his grace through our faith. And Paul's saying because of all that, he says, therefore, because of what God has done freely by his grace and the work of the cross and the Lord Jesus Christ, he says because of that, there is no condemnation. Therefore, there is no condemnation. And that is a tremendous statement. And it ought to be one that we never get over. Because really, sometimes, you know, you get saved and you're saved 25, 30 years. You tend to forget where you were at at the day you got saved. But all of us in here that are Christians, at one time, all of the world, we were in a condemned state. A condemned state. Condemned men and women. The death sentence had been pronounced. When was it pronounced on all of us? It was pronounced on Adam. When he sinned, we sinned in him. And from there on out, the death sentence, all have sinned and all have died ever since then. And we've just been waiting for the execution to take place. We live in this holding cell. It's not like one of those dirty dungeons you might see over in Iraq, right? We got air to breathe, food to eat, but it's a holding cell nonetheless. And we're just awaiting execution. That's where we were, and the chains were our sins, right? That was all of us at one time. So if you've ever seen the movie Ben-Hur, and I'm not talking about the new one. I wouldn't go see the new one. I'm talking about the old one with Charlton Heston, the old version, right? You know, that movie really, it's the story of the Christ is what it is. It's to show God's grace to sinners is what the movie's about. But you know, Judah Ben-Hur, the main character, he's unjustly accused of trying to kill the Roman governor. He never meant to do that, and he's condemned by his best friend to die as a galley slave, rowing Roman ships. And so what happened to him? He's chained to the bottom of the ship. Now, he's still alive, but the sentence has been passed. He's condemned to death. They don't last long down there with those conditions, the disease, the lack of food, how hard it was, the battles that take place. They're going to drown down there. He's got a death sentence on him, even though he's still alive. His doom was sure. Uh, for those of you that know the movie, what happened? God, by his sovereign grace, intervened through circumstances, right? And the condemned criminal, Judah Ben-Hur, in the end of the movie, was fully justified, wasn't he? He was adopted by a Roman senator. And when that happened, he wasn't just then on out a paroled criminal. Well, you're, you're still a criminal, but we're just going to let you off the hook because you did me a favor. No, he was fully justified. He was a free Roman son. And for him, it was no condemnation. And that's a picture of what's happened to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only difference is our death sentence and our condemnation was fully earned. Our doom was sure 
and it was deserved. But here's what happened. Just like with him, God's sovereign grace came into our lives, didn't it? At one point, right? His goodness, it, Paul says in Romans, earlier in Romans, his goodness did, did what? It was his goodness that brought us to repentance. It brought us and opened our eyes to our sin to see what it was that we could turn from our life of sin. That was his goodness, his grace. And he gave us the faith to trust in the finished work of Calvary. And as we'll see, he adopted us as his children. Gave us his name and his nature. Changed our nature. We weren't like we were before. And so... What we're reading is, is, therefore, we have no condemnation. That means there is not just a little bit. He's saying there is none. So our guilt and our death sentence, it is forever gone. We really need to realize that. It is forever gone, fully justified in God's sight. So we're not just paroled people, paroled criminals, but we're fully forgiven and righteous sons and daughters of God. And so when is that true? When does that take place? You know, the Catholics and the Muslims, you talk to them, they'll tell you they think Christians are arrogant to say that you can know now that you are going to be in heaven. I talked to a Muslim one time. He says, that's the most arrogant thing I've ever heard said. He says, you can, we'll have to wait until that day. No, we can't know, can't have any assurance. But how can we know? When does that take place? Do we have to wait until we get there to find out? What does it say? It says, there is therefore when. Now, no condemnation. And I think some people struggle with that. They struggle with the fact, am I really going to heaven for sure? Can I know that? So if you would put something there, turn back to John chapter 5, please. I heard this back when I first got saved. Because a lot of times the devil is going to fight you over, I don't care how long you've been in this wall, he'll still try to battle you. Are you sure you're born again? Are you sure you're saved? Are you sure you're going to heaven? And here's a positive promise. I think I could have quoted it. I think it's worth seeing. So John 5, beginning in verse 22, look what it says. Jesus is speaking, For the Father judges no man, but he's committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honors not the Father which has sent him. Now look here in verse 24. This is one to highlight in your Bible. Jesus says, Verily, verily, truly, truly, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me hath, that means it's a present possession now. He says he hath everlasting life. Not going to wait to get it. And he says he shall not come into what? No condemnation. You put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, commit your life to him. Condemnation is past. He says no condemnation, never come into that. But is what? He has passed from death unto life once and for all. Shall not come into condemnation. That's what it says. Don't have to fear it. And you think about it. Do we have to fear the condemnation of God? Who is the one that will be our judge? What does it say in verse 22? 522. He says, the Father has committed all judgment unto me. He's the one that's making us the promise. He's the one that is our Lord and Savior. So if he's done all that and made that promise, why do we have to fear condemnation when we die? And that's what's the problem with the world and people that know they haven't given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. They have that fear, that fear of death. And it's that fear of condemnation 
because their conscience is telling them they deserve punishment. It has to happen. But we'll see our punishment was fully met in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's none left for us. He took it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. So if we turn back, we can also see this. If you go back to Romans 8, you see the same idea. If you look down in verses 33 to 34, and Paul says, who is going to lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God. How are you going to charge me with any crime or sin? It's God's the one that justified me. And look what he says in verse 34. Who is he that condemns? Because the devil will try to condemn you. He says, it's Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. And he's even at the right hand of God doing what for us? Making intercession for us. He's praying for us. He's praying for us in those tough situations we get in. All the trials we're in. All the times we feel like, man, I can't make it. Even the times when we failed and we feel like I'm ashamed to get back on track again. No, Jesus is praying for us to get us back on track. So the next question is, going back to verse 1, who is this true for? Is it true for everyone in the world? We know it's not. But what does it say then? There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Those that are brought into union with him, united to him. And what does that mean? What does that mean? So when you commit your lives fully to the Lord Jesus Christ and you place your trust in him, just like a wife does her husband at the wedding ceremony, that's what's taking place. That's an act of faith and commitment when you get married. And what happens when that happens? A mysterious union takes place between the believer and Jesus Christ. When you commit yourself to him, that's what the Bible teaches. A mysterious union takes place. We'll say that you can't understand it. The one flesh union between a husband and wife. Someone explain that. You can't really explain that. You just know it's true, right? But listen what it says in Ephesians 5, 28 to 32. It says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies, and he that loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever hated his own flesh. So his wife becomes his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. And it says, for this call shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife. And they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. And he's saying that union we have with the Lord Jesus Christ is a mystery. That's what he's saying. We can't understand it. But it's nevertheless real. So we're joined to Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the most personal way possible. It couldn't be any more personal than it is. And we have to believe that. We have to quit thinking of ourselves as just merely forgiven. I've just been forgiven. As just merely a believer. As just merely somebody that's trying to hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to quit thinking that way. And we have to see that God himself has put us into Christ. Has joined us to Christ. This is more than just, oh, I asked him to forgive me, but I don't really sense that he's really with me or part of me or not like a husband-wife relationship, right? In Romans 6, 5, it says we have been planted together with him. And that means we've been united to him. And so when that takes place, and that takes place when you believe, when you trust on the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't fall in and out of that union. You don't fall in and out of it. 
You're not united and then not united, right? So when and if we sin, the Bible does say we will sin if we sin. That'll happen, right? And forgiveness is there. But when that happens, we don't fall back into condemnation. We don't go back into condemnation, do we? We don't cease to be a Christian just because we've sinned. Sin is grievous. We should be ashamed and we need to repent. But here's the difference between sinning as a non-Christian and as a Christian. As a non-Christian, you're sinning against the law, but as a Christian, you're sinning against love, if I can put it that way. You're sinning against a relationship, a huge difference. So when David sinned with Bathsheba and was confronted with his sin, what did he say? It wasn't an impersonal repentance. He said, against you, you only have I sinned. And he says, I've done this evil in thy sight. He's ashamed of the relationship he has with the Lord, this personal relationship. He's not looking at it like it's some impersonal law he's sinned. No, I sinned against you. Sinners don't think that way. I never did before I became a Christian. So here, we may be chastised because of our sin, and all of us have been, if you're a Christian. I have been many times. All of us are going to be chastised, but we're not going to be judged as a wicked person would for sin. So Martin Lloyd-Jones gave this illustration, and he said this. He said, the difference between an unbeliever sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man violating one of the laws, let's say, of the state of Kentucky, and a husband that doesn't treat his wife right. So in the first case, the man doing that, he commits an offense against the state. It's impersonal. The state of Kentucky is impersonal when you break one of their laws, right? But in the case of the husband with his wife, He's not breaking a law, is he? But what's he doing? He's wounding the heart of his wife. So it's not a legal matter with that, but it's a matter of personal relationship, a relationship of love. Because here's what happens. When that takes place, the man doesn't cease to be the husband of the wife and the woman to be the wife of the husband. The law doesn't come into that matter at all, does it? it we're outside of that realm, out of the side of, of the realm of law, rather, we're offending a personal relationship, and that's what happens when we sin against God, right? And so what would you rather do? Would you rather get a ticket for speeding? I mean, does that like break your heart? It might break your heart if you don't have a lot of money. But when you know you have somebody that you really care about and you see that you've hurt them deeply, that should be more wounding, more offensive to you, right, that you want to avoid. And that's the way it is with the Lord. And think about this. Think about it. When Peter denied the Lord... That was a sin, wasn't it? I mean, Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father and the angels. It was a sin. He cursed and blasphemed that he knew Jesus. And Luke says this is what happened, though, after he did that. Right after he did it, the third time, it says, the Lord turned and he looked upon Peter. Their eyes met when that happened. And you know what? Peter realized that he hurt someone he loved right? And so what was the result of that? It says next in Luke, it says, Peter went out and what did he do? It says he wept bitterly, right? Now, Peter, when that happened, he was a saved man. He didn't come back under condemnation because of what had happened there, did he? Right? But he affected their relationship because Jesus says this. He says, as many as I love, 
he says in Revelation 3. What does he say? As many as I love, I'll rebuke you. I'll rebuke you because I want you to get things right. You have to get things right. He says, I'll rebuke you and condemn you. Is that what it says? No. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And that is for our good. Because, you know, you know how it is with your kids. And you know how it is when God chastens you. Bam! Just happened to me. Got one the other day. Bam! And the reason is, what that does is you're like, oh man, it exposed something in you. All chastening, not necessarily because of sin, intentional sin. But you get in a situation, God's chastening you, training you. And you realize something came out of me. I didn't realize it was there. And bam! You're getting a spanking, so to speak. And so the next time you get in that situation, you're like, I remember that. It's like, Mom, I don't, I don't like that. No, no, no. I'm going to do my best, Lord. Remind me to watch myself next time, right? And that's what love does, so that we can be partakers, it says, of his holiness. And that's the way it works. So when it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, what is the result of that? What is the result? And here we have in verse 2 the result. It says, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has done something for us, has made me free from another law, from the law of sin and death. So here we had been as sinners, we were captive, we were slaves to a principle of sin. Couldn't get out of it. Look up in chapter 7, verse 23. And Paul says this, but I see another law or principle in my members warring against the law of my mind, and it brings me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And listen, that phrase there brings me into captivity. It's painting a picture back then. It describes a soldier who's taken a prisoner and he's got a spear on his back and he's poking him over to go into being a prisoner, wherever they're going to hold him. He's just push, pushing him along that way. And the, and the guy that's being held captive, he doesn't have any choice. And isn't that the way we were with sin? We were enslaved. And it, we're just being pushed along wherever it wants to take us. <laughs> As Paul says about the devil, we're taken captive by him at his will. And Titus describes all of us before Christ. This is what he says. And he says, don't forget that you were this way. He says, before we were in Christ, you were disobedient, deceived, and he says we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, taken captive, enslaved to various pleasures and lust. And that's the thing. I mean, how many times, I can remember, how many times as a sinner, you're still a sinner, but your conscience is bothering you, and you do things you know you shouldn't do, and you end up crying out like Paul does up in verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But hey, it didn't stop there for us as Christians, because we can go on and say what he says in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's given us deliverance, and that's what we're seeing here in verse 2. The law of the Spirit in life in Christ Jesus. That law, that principle, has set us free from the law of sin and death. That's a principle of the Spirit of life, and it comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, verse 1 had to take place. That condemnation had to be dealt with. And once that's dealt with, once our sins have been dealt with, then the Spirit of life, the law, that principle, comes into our life. And it delivers us from that power of sin and death that we lived in. Right? So turn over to Galatians 3, if you would. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 10. 
And we're going to actually see that that is exactly what Paul is explaining here, verses 10 through 14. It says, For as many as of are the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just, the righteous person. The only way you can be that way is to live by faith. So he's saying all the law does is bring us into condemnation. And we see we can't live the way we're supposed to live. But he goes on to say in verse 12, And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. And look in verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He was made a curse for us. He took our condemnation. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Why did that happen? That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. And here's why he did all he did. That we might receive the promise of what? Or whom? The promise of the Spirit by faith. So once we see that Jesus redeemed us from the curse and exercised faith in, in that, verse 11, then we can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. That's the purpose. And listen, when we receive that, we receive a whole lot. So when he's saying the spirit of life, there's a whole lot in that. That's, that's a whole other message and series of its own life, right? But I know for myself and I remember Tanner, when he shared his testimony up here, it blessed me because he says something that you don't always hear a lot, though. His whole thing, it's, and tongues are a blessing. There's so much that tongues enable us to do, the greatest thing in the world. But the greatest thing for me the night I got saved was I knew that I was a sinner. But I knew I struggled trying to live the Christian life before that night. And the pastor told me, he said, hey, you get the Holy Spirit, it'll give you power over sin and I'm like I need that I knew I needed that because I knew I wanted to be able to live right before the Lord and I knew that in myself I did not have that power and that's what Paul is saying the spirit of life in Christ Jesus it set us free from that principle of I can't overcome I can't help sinning and that's what he does and also with that though comes what things I was not looking for I mean, the, the night I was told about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and this will be speaking in tongues, the furthest thing from my mind is you'll want to be able to trust God for healing or you're going to be delivered of evil spirits. But I'm saying when that truth came, that's part of the life, isn't it? Because sin and death, that is, oh man, sickness is all part of that. Being in bondage to the devil, all the mental problems that people have. And yet here comes that truth. The law, that principle, that power of the spirit of life. Oh, man, when I heard that, I mean, I had been told you've got to be on medication the rest of your life. That's what I was told. They told my parents that. And I heard this truth. I'm like, praise God. I've heard the truth. And Jesus set me free. I don't have to be. I haven't been. Some people might think I need to be, but I'm just saying, praise God. <laughs> Healing, deliverance. And we'll talk more about this. <laughs> the spirit of God. Unlike what we heard, he came on us and he is in us and we are in union with him. And so, as I've heard it said, when you pray for somebody in the name of Jesus, you lay hands on them. Mark 16, they lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. When you do that, I heard this said years back, in a sense, you're bringing Jesus down to earth. 
He's up in heaven, but he comes down through us and through us when we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Healing through the Holy Spirit is flowing into that person or deliverance. That spirit is being cast out. The spirit of life set us free from that principle of sin and death and bondage that the devil has us in. Amen. That's the gospel, isn't it? It's not just freedom from sinning, but it is freedom from sinning. Unbelief is a terrible sin. When it says in the Ten Commandments, the first one, that you shall have no other gods before me, you know what that's saying? That's saying any type of God. When he says, I am the Lord that heals thee, he is the Lord that heals us. No other God should be before him in that. Not as a Christian. And so that's what trust and faith is all about. And that's what the Holy Spirit most people that have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they don't accept the gifts. They don't accept the truth of divine healing. Now, there have been men down through the years that didn't have the truth of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that had seen the truth of divine healing and exercised faith and had tremendous ministries in healing. They don't have to necessarily, but generally, that's the way it works, right? Most Pentecostal charismatic churches are where you're going to find people that are using, operating, opening to the gifts of the Spirit. Amen? That's the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Comes into us, dealt with that condemnation, and then He can bless us with life and power. Power over sin and death. Amen. And you know, like somebody said, when the Holy Spirit comes in you, something's gotten in you. <laughs> right? All right, that's what's happened. Life gets in you, right? And what happens, you know what? It'll show, won't it? It should. You know, you ever have where your kids act or acting goofy? They got that goofy look on your face, and you're like, man, what's gotten into you? Isn't that what we say? That's kind of a common experience. Well, that should happen. When, when someone has the Holy Spirit and things are all operating right, there ought to be something about you that somebody's just thinking, what has gotten into him? Isn't it? That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. I mean, those people really were full of the Holy Spirit. They're like, what? If that crowd gathered around her, what has gotten into these people? They're drunk. And it's not time to be, it's not the happy hour. They were a little bit early on the happy hour. They're finding, what is going on here? People should see a difference. They really should. You know, I went to this revival conference a few years back, and it was held by this group of people. I've been getting their, it's like a little newspaper, they say. It's just great. They have all kinds of articles in there on revival and old saints and Andrew Murray, Hudson Taylor, all these articles. I just love it. Well, anyways, I talked to the man that runs that on the phone and all, but I'd never met him. And so they had a booth set up, and I met him and several girls and people on his staff. And I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> I've met people like this, and there are people here like this, but they just had this glow about them. I just, it just it was remarkable to me, just more than is typical that you would see. And I know I, I commented to the guy, said, you know, these... These women and, and you and these people on your staff just have this glow about you all. And I know one thing about them. He kind of tried to blow it off, but I know one thing about these people. They are conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians that spend a lot of time in prayer. They really do. And it shows. And that's where it comes from. You think about it. What did Moses do? Moses spent a lot of time with prayer with God. Face-to-face, -face, it says, right? He comes down off that mountain and he had a glow about him, so much that it scared the people. you got to put a veil over that, Moses. But when you read 2 Corinthians 3, and it talks about that, at the very end, he's saying we can do the same thing by the Spirit. We can behold the Lord face to face. And then, as that happens, we'll be changed into that image. 
and then it will show on it. And I'm saying that's what I'm believing for myself for, right? Gentleness, meekness. <laughs> the fruit of the Spirit, it'll show. And when that's there, God's going to have somebody to come and eat that fruit that you're bearing, right? <laughs> Amen. All right. So what Paul does, if you go back to Romans 8, if you go back to Paul, what he does a lot of times is he'll make some statements and then he'll unpack them. So we've looked at the first two statements he's made in verses 1 and 2. And what he does is he proceeds to just unpack what he said there in verses 3 and 4. And so look in verse 3, what he says. He says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. So the first thing that, that Paul makes clear here is God had to take the initiative and do what the law couldn't do. Because if you read chapter 7, Paul is clearly saying something, isn't he? He's saying what? The, the theme, you know, people get all hung up on, well, was Paul a Christian or not a Christian? Or not? Forget about that. Because you can look at that two different ways based on what's written. That's the endless debate that goes on with all these commentaries and theologians and all that. The point is, he is clearly saying that the law has no power to change him or to change us. So the law is only good at what? The law is good at exposing wickedness in his heart. Look in chapter 7, verse 7. He said, what shall I say then? Is the law sin? He says, God forbid. Yea, I had not known sin. How did he know sin? But by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, thou shalt not covenant. So what did the law do? All the law did was expose him. And that's the purpose of the law, to show you you're a wicked sinner, you need a savior. That's the only reason God ever gave it. And it worked with Paul. Paul said he didn't know how bad he was until the law said, thou shalt not covet. And it's like, whoops, that's me. That's the one that nailed him. And here's the thing. He's saying it showed me that, but you know what? It didn't lift a finger to change me didn't help me at all, right? And the law also, it'll do what? It'll define what sin is. Tell us what the rules are. That's what it does. Here's a lot of times we wouldn't know for sure what's in and what's out, what's right and what's wrong. You know, a lot of these guys play board games there. The Hartmans are big board game people, right? And so how many times you get in these board games and you start playing and you're playing with a different crowd than you usually do and you're like, wait a minute, that's not the way we play. And it's like, well, no, that's the way we've always done it. And you're like, wait, we got to find out what's going on. So what do you do? You go find a cardboard box that the game came in and hopefully the rules are still in there. And you get the rules out and you're wait, wait a minute, the Hartmans have been cheating the whole time. <laughs> What's the deal here, right? So listen, that's what the law will do. You know, you're going along and all of a sudden you hear thou shalt not steal and you realize, whoa, wait a minute, I've been lifting things here at work. And it convicts you, right? It'll do that. So it'll tell you things like this, tell you the limits. A question, what if I borrow my neighbor's ox and it dies before I get it returned? I'm not sure what to do. Go to the law. The old t it'll tell you. It's got a case of that. And if you want to update it, what do you do if you borrow somebody's car and it breaks down while you've borrowed it? Well, the principle still applies, amen? Tells you what the rules are, right? And the law not only exposes sin, not only defines sin, but we know that it also does what? It creates a desire for sin, doesn't it? 
Just tell somebody, don't walk on my grass, and next thing you know, you'll have a well-worn spot there, right? So listen to this. Augustine, the great theologian Augustine, the Protestants claim him and the Catholics claim him, but he was a man of God. But anyways, when he was a young boy, <laughs> he wrote this book called The Confessions of Augustine. So when he was a young boy, he had a pear tree that was near his home, and it was loaded with pears. And here's what he said about them. He says, well, the fruit was not particularly attractive, either in color or taste. I and some other wretched youth conceived the idea of shaking the pears off this tree and carrying them away. He's like, these pears weren't even any good. But me and my buddies, wretched as we were, sinners, we decided we're going to shake that tree and get all these pears and carry them away. He went on to say, so we set out late that night. And we stole all the fruit, all the pears that we could carry. And he said, this wasn't to feed ourselves. He said, we may have tasted a few, but he said, then we threw the rest to the pigs. He said, I had no wish to enjoy what I tried to get by theft. He said, all my enjoyment was in the theft itself and sin. That's what he said. He said, I, mean, I didn't care about eating those pears. One thing I wanted to do is I wanted to steal those things. That's where my pleasure came from because it said, thou shalt not steal. So here, the pleasure comes. He says the real pleasure was in doing something that was not allowed. That's what he ended up saying. And I would say this. Now you know why the book is called Confessions. <laughs> he had a lot to confess. He had a major transformation when he got saved. He was not a good individual as a young man. But that's what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, I wouldn't have known about coveting if the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But he went on to say, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, through that commandment, thou shalt not covet. He says, it produced in me coveting of every kind. And so Paul said, when I heard thou shalt not covet, he said, it just made me covet all the more. And that's what sin will do. That is what the law does. But listen, here's what it cannot do. That doesn't help us out at all, does it? Not at all. But what is it that it can't do? It can't justify us, can it, before God? All it can do is condemn us, right? And it also can't give us power over sin. It can't give us righteousness or make us holy. Why? Why does it say it can't do that? Look in verse 3 for what the law could not do. Why? Because it was weak through the flesh through our sinful flesh. That's why it was made weak because of our sinfulness. So trying to obey all the commandments is not going to help anybody. Only going to condemn you. So God the Father is saying, here's the positive thing. If we were just left with the law, we would be undone. God would be just in letting the law run its course, wouldn't he? And executing all of us in the end. Do we understand that? God had no obligation to save anyone, no obligation to take the initiative to help us in any way. He didn't. Do we understand that? Amen. But he did something for us. <laughs> he came down here and did something for us. He sent his son to justify us, we see in verse 3, and he gave us his spirit that enables us to obey, to do what's right. And that's what's in verse 4. And hey, you know, we had that little teaching on the Trinity, and you see it, put your Trinitarian glasses on, as Dr. Ware would say, right here in verses 3 and 4, because we see here, it's God sending his own son, and then it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as a sin offering, there's the son dying on the cross, and there's the spirit in verse 4, 
who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And so the whole triune God is involved in that. Right there it is in verses 3 and 4. So here, the love of the Father. I want to talk about that for a minute. You see the love of the Father in sending, it says, His own Son. What an expression. His own Son. You know, it's like this. You know, you, you can tell. I'm not being political at all. I'm saying if you just watch any of the news, you can tell Donald Trump loves his family, and they love him. I mean, that's just a fact, whether you agree with his politics or anything about him or not. They love his kids, and especially his son. And so you, could you imagine one day you hear a knock on your, open your front door, and there stands one of his sons, Donald Trump Jr., standing at your front door. And he's got a letter he hands you, an invitation he hands you. It's an invitation to the Trump Tower in New York City for the weekend. And as he's staying in there, you open the note, and here's what it says. I would like you to be my guest at Trump Tower, and just to make sure there was no doubt about my intentions, I sent my own son to deliver the message. And you would be like, I can't believe this. Who am I that he sent as Donald Trump sent his own son, the president to be, the bolt multi-billionaire, to my house to give me an invitation? That's nothing compared to what God the Father has done. I'm telling you, absolutely nothing. So we'd be floored with that. We ought to be floored by the fact that he sent his own son to us. Right? There's a modern hymn. A lot of people know it. It'd be a great one to sing here. It's been around a while. How deep the Father's love. That song begins like this. Listen to the words. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. <laughs> that says it all. That's what God's done for us. How deep the Father's love for us. It's vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. So it says there he had to send his only son. And then it says he sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. There's a lot of theology here. I'm not going to get into all the theology, but it says in the likeness. So Jesus came. We talked about this in Isaiah 53. He looked like a nobody despised and rejected. He wasn't Mr. Cool. But he looked just like any other man. And he was, except for it was in the likeness of sinful flesh. His flesh was not sinful. There was no sin in him. So he was fully and truly human, the second Adam. But unlike Adam and all of us that have descended from Adam, he was pure and harmless and undefiled and sinless. Amen? He was all of that. And it says, and for sin. So look in verse 3. For what the law couldn't do, God did this for us. It was weak in our flesh, so God had to do something. It says he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, and that really means as a sin offering. Being our sin offering then, that's what enabled him to do what's there at the end. He condemned sin in the flesh. So God judged our sins in the sinless humanity of his son who took our place. And that's why it says there is now no condemnation because all the condemnation that was coming our way fell right on him. All the punishment, all the judgment, all the pronouncement, all the guilt that we had, it all went right on him. So when the devil tries to tell you, hey, 
You're, you're condemned. You're not going to make it. You're not going to be able to stand before. You say, no, 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 I am. It has nothing to do with me. Jesus paid it all. He took it all. Took all that condemnation on him. And that's what it's saying there. All we deserve was fully laid on him. And why? What was the purpose for that? And we tend to forget that because some people want to just stop there. Oh, Jesus died for my sins and hallelujah, I'm happy and walking on down the street. But that is not the ultimate purpose because ultimate purpose is found in verse 4. And look at that first word. That is an important word. So he's saying everything that happened in verse 3, God sending his son, his son being a sin offering, condemning sin in the flesh, taking our punishment on the cross, happened for a reason. And that is what that means. That is a purpose word, right? I'm going to punch you in the nose. That you can hurt. It's the purpose of punching you in the nose. So it'll bleed, right? And so he's saying God did all that for a purpose, verse 4. And here's the purpose that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So listen, what he's saying is Jesus didn't come. He didn't die on the cross. He didn't take our sin and our condemnation so that we could just live any way we want to. We got to hear that. That's not why he came, so that we can just live our own life and do what we want to do, but that the righteousness of the law would be fulfilled in us. And how do we do that? By walking in the Spirit through the power of the Holy Ghost. And so we see that back here. Look in chapter 7, verse 4. Paul writes, Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Why that? Another purpose. That you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead. Another that. Here's the ultimate purpose of our salvation. That we should bring forth what fruit unto God look down in verse 6 he says and now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held that we should serve how in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter so Jesus died and the spirit has come so that we can walk in righteousness so that we can walk in the sermon on the mount and he said in the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning, he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. He says, I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And he goes on and takes the letter of the law or the commandments, which is all they thought they had to obey, and he gives the deeper principle behind them all, right? The spirit behind them. And listen, when we're a Christian and we're under grace, it's not more easy than when we were under the law. It's more difficult. Because it's not just the letter. We've got to live the Spirit. So he says, don't just avoid physical adultery and think that you're all right, that you're righteous. He says, no, it's the heart. If you lust, if you lust after women, if you look at pornography, he's saying you're guilty. You're guilty. He goes on to say, he says, don't just boast if you've murdered anybody. He says, no, it's the heart again. If you have anger, if you're angry or you hate someone, John says, he that hates his brother is a murderer. That's tough, isn't it? That's where we're living at, isn't it? So Jesus gave the intent of the Spirit behind the law, and guess what? That's why he says, and only the Holy Spirit 
We need that spirit of life, that power is the only way we're going to obey what he says because the Pharisees were outwardly doing well. Paul said he was, right? And Jesus says our righteousness, what he's going to require from us on that day had better far exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And that means it's going to be our hearts have been changed and our hearts were growing in holiness and faithfulness to God. That's the way it should be. So, look over in Romans, just turn over a couple chapters, if you would please, to Romans chapter 13. And look what it says there. We're saying that the purpose for Jesus dying, filling us with the Spirit, is that the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled in us as we walk in the Spirit. And that's what Paul talks about here later in Romans 13, beginning in verse 8. And he says, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loves has done what? He that had loveth another has done what? Fulfilled the law. Isn't that what we just read in Romans 8? 4, that's the purpose. That's the purpose. He says, for this, he says, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. If there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So if you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from them. You're not going to murder them. You're not going to hate them. You're not going to covet what they have. You're going to be looking for ways to bless them and be content with things you have and on and on, right? And so he goes on in verse 10. He says what? Love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is what? The fulfilling of the law. And so listen, true love is a supernatural work that can only be done by the Spirit of God. Isn't it? <laughs> it really truly is. <laughs> Believe me, we'll be finding that out more and more as these end times come. And when the love of many wax cold, it's going to be difficult. We're going to have to be walking in the Spirit and praying in the Spirit <laughs> and have that renewed commitment daily to hold on to the Lord, aren't we? To make it through, we will. Our requirements from our side, the world can live however they want to, but we are still under our Lord and Master who tells us to love our enemies and to do good to those that hate us and persecute us. Doesn't he? And I'm saying, I don't think it's going to get any easier. I hate to be making this movie day. It's not like I just sit around and watch movies all the time. There's this movie that we watched years back. There was a Christian bookstore and they had some different Christian movies you could watch down in Florida. Shiakara Pass. I probably said it wrong. It's a Japanese Christian film. Now, you would think Japanese Christian film, the, the American ones are bad enough. This actually is a very good movie, Christian movie, and it's dubbed with English. It doesn't have subtitles. But in this movie, there's this young Japanese man, Nagano. Nagano. He's in love with this Japanese girl. She's dying of tuberculosis. And if you get the movie, you can see it on YouTube for free now. It's worth watching. He falls in love with this Christian girl who's dying of tuberculosis, and God does heal her in his movie. And she's a devout Christian. He wants to marry her, but her brother, he had to go through the brother. The brother's like, I'm not going to let you marry my sister unless you become a Christian. And so one day he's out. He worked for the train system. And he's out there, and here's this pastor standing out in the snow evangelizing the city. And he stands there and listens to him. And he realizes, well, I think what he's saying is right. He goes in, and him and the pastor, this pastor, are talking together. And as they talk, the pastor just tells him, he's wanting to be baptized. He says, I can't baptize you because you don't really think you're a sinner, he tells this man. He says, you think you're a good person. And he's like, I just want you to do this, the pastor tells him. He says, I want you to find a passage out of the Bible, 
whatever you find, and I want you to live it. And you'll see that you need the Lord. And so this guy went back and he read the passage of the Good Samaritan. And so he decides, I can do that. I can do that. I'm a good person. So he's got this friend of his that gets in serious trouble. And so he decides, I'm going to be the Good Samaritan to my friend. I'm going to help him out. And he does. I won't get into the whole thing. He helps him at great cost and personal sacrifice. He helps this guy. That guy comes home one day and just starts mocking this man. Nagano, Nagano. Starts mocking Nagano. Treating him like dirt. And Nagano gets offended. He hates this guy. And he realizes, I hate him. I don't love him. All I want to do is kill him. And he gets away and God deals with him and he shows him you're full of pride you're helping this guy thinking he's beneath you and you're helping him and you're superior to him he showed him his pride he showed him his hatred and through all that he showed him that you can't do it on your own you need to have a changed heart you need the help of the Holy Spirit and so he gets saved through that and here's the thing Christianity for anyone here is not trying to obey the Ten Commandments with an unchanged heart or in the power of our flesh will fail every single time. That pastor knew it and that's why he told it and that man, Nagano, found it out. And that's what happens with that story. And so once he gets saved and soundly saved, he's back with his friend, still helping his friend out. And the guy just still is treating him like dirt except there's a big change in Nagano now. He's able to handle all that. And the end of the movie, the ultimate test comes to where he has to say, we're talking about love as the fulfilling of the law. And he got in a situation where he was literally, literally going to have to lay his life down for this man that despised him at the time. And he did it. So watch the movie. <laughs> we'll watch it with my family tonight. It's a great movie. But that's the love, and that's all that the Holy Spirit can do, and that's the purpose for Jesus redeeming us. And we see that love in Stephen, don't we, in the book of Acts. You know, it's said that Stephen was full of faith and the Holy Ghost, and when he was squeezed, the love of God, as it says in Romans 5.1, the love of God that was shed abroad in his heart, it oozed out. Because when you read the account in Acts 7, when he rebukes the high priest and the religious leaders for not keeping the law, it says that they gnashed on him with their teeth. Must have been pretty bad. Wasn't a whole lot of love coming from their side, right? But Stephen, it says, being full of the Holy Ghost. And that's the key, isn't it? Isn't that why Paul says, be filled with the Spirit in Romans 5. We've got to always be filled with the Spirit in the way we walk every day. We can't afford not to be. But it says, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on his right hand. And Stephen tells them what he's seeing. It's more than these guys can handle. It says they cried out with a loud voice, put their hands over their ears. They drag him out of the city. And then they squeezed him like a grape to see what would come out. How did they do that? Start hitting him with stones, squeezing him like a grape. And what comes out of a man or a woman that's filled with the Holy Spirit when you squeeze them like that? That's what we're talking about. It's the love of God. Because it talks, if you read the account, Stephen kneeled down as the rocks and hatred were pummeling his head and body. And it says he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin 
to their charge. And what do we see in operating there? The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's what was operating through that man. He was fulfilling the law, the righteousness of the law. Jesus said in John 15, 12 to 13, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And I could add his enemies. Because he says we are to love our enemies. So what have we seen today in Romans 8, 1 to 4? I hope a lot of good things. I hope a lot of things to encourage us that we are forever, we need to meditate on this, forever and entirely free from the guilt and the punishment of our sins. No condemnations coming our way. We don't have to worry about dying and what's going to be on the other side. We've got to get that in our hearts. We pass from the realm of sin and death by the power of the Holy Spirit, living in a new realm, a realm of life and peace. Amen? And so God, it says, He did for us what the law could never do. Praise God, He did a lot of things for us that the law could never do. He justified us, gave us the power. It didn't just stop there with forgiving our sin, but no, He filled us with the Spirit, paid our debt, and then filled us with the Spirit, His Spirit, so that we could receive the life and power that comes through that, so that His ultimate purpose can be fulfilled that we can fulfill the righteousness of the law. Love. Love. Learning how to love. Amen. That is where it's at. Along with everything else that includes, like we talked about, healing, deliverance, trust in God, knowing that He's our righteousness, our healer, our provider, just everything that includes life in God. That's what He's done for us. The whole purpose. But we need to remember, we need to remember we're Christians and the ultimate purpose for us being Christians is to be holy people. And Titus 2 says this, we're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, and here's that word again, that. Here's the purpose, he gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So if we really love the Lord and we want to honor him, that's what we'll become, a peculiar people zealous of good works. The holy life is not a life of bondage because when we see the Lord, it says we will worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. It's a beautiful life. A holy life is a beautiful life and one to be admired. Amen? Amen. Amen. We'll just end there. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the great truths that you've shown us today, Lord, that there is no condemnation for us that are in Christ Jesus, Lord. And so when we sin, we're not put back under the law. We're not put back under judgment, no. We need to repent, Lord, but our relationship with you is sure and steadfast that you are our Father and we are your children. And we thank you so much, Lord, for what you've done for sending your only Son on earth to die on our behalf. And then through that, Father, that you've given us your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life, and that through him you have set us free from the law of sin and death. We're so grateful for that and we thank you so much.
And I just ask you'll make all of this real to all of us today and it calls us to walk more and more in your light and your holiness and for our trust in you to increase daily. And I thank you that you'll do that for us here in Jesus' name. Amen.